action. Welcome to Torn Stubs with me, photographer Robert Gershenson, and Josh Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. We are concluding our series on 21st century horror by moving on to what can be considered our own personal final girl, Saint Maud, directed by Rose Glass. Joshua. Something terrible happened to Nurse Maud, played by Morfid Clark, one day at her work at the hospital. Having since found God, she goes to care for Amanda, played by Jennifer Ely, a former dancer who is now terminally ill with lymphoma. Maud determines to ready Amanda for death, but with her faith continually tested, it's not long before everything starts to go wrong. Rob, you hadn't seen this before, had you? No, I had, of course. Yes, I had. Oh, you had? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw this... Uh, it was the very last film I saw before we locked down for the second time. Yeah. And I saw this at the View Cinema in Garston, which is on the other side of Watford. I hadn't been to that cinema since it was a Warner Brothers cinema. And the last film I had seen there was Con Air in 1997. <laughs> I mean, I can see the parallels between the two. This is weird, right? I, d- I, don't, I don't understand film distribution in the sense that you would think a cinema like this which is part of a little complex that's got a bowling alley and a chikatita restaurant and <laughs> now it's got like a um uh, a um remember the end of gladiators where they do like a big grown-up obstacle course that kind of thing oh yeah they've got one of those they've got one of those but for adults right so it's in this weird complex that's almost like a saturday afternoon sunday afternoon fun time for the kids and the family and yeah (laughs) the cinema will put on art house stuff like this huh there's a there's a there's a a complex in hemel hempstead that has like a big tesco's and then it's got the cinema then the nando's and the five guys and the gym Five and they put guys. on they put on the art house stuff. Like I had to go there to see Censor and the French oh. Dispatch. And that's After random, Love, but I love it. It's it's really random because you would think that these films would only play in the metropolitan city areas like London or Leeds or Manchester or Brighton, but they're out in the suburban Hertfordshire suburbs. Well, maybe they just have a, a pocket of really highly cultured, high taste value sort of people living in those areas me <laughs> yeah leading the crowd as always me so i did see it and i really liked it yeah well this is I, I just feel like this is made for you because you are such a fan of theological horror you I love like theological horror. horror i like ambiguous avant-garde narratives i mm-hmm. like to be at first watch utterly baffled <laughs> you know, the, these films baffle us, you know, things like Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway, you know, two David Lynch films. Two David Lynch films, yeah. <laughs> they, they, but they, the, these sort of films in this vein, they completely baffle us. But there's something in there that says it holds together somehow. I can't work it out. Yeah. It's a puzzle. I've got to come back and watch it. Uh-huh. So you've watched it a second time for this? This is the second time I watched it, yeah. Cause it's okay, and what did you... Did it was it easier to put it together on a second watch? On the second watch, yes. Much like 
last week's film, Get Out, I mm. think it, it requires a second watch because you, with the knowledge of what happens at the end of the film, the end of St. Maud, you start to go, right, okay, I get it. She's not floating or she is floating, but now I know why she's floating. Or mm-hmm. was her face stretching? Oh, yeah, her face was stretching. Oh, yeah. Because potentially that's not her skin. You know, she's inhabiting a human body or mm. she's so in awe of God that her face has to stretch in order to to convey that. You just, you know, once you have the knowledge and spoilers, you know, she is or isn't an angel. Once you have Either that way, knowledge... Either she, way, she dies at the end. Yeah. You know, you have that knowledge and it makes things click into place. The jigsaw mm. clicks together perfectly. And actually, I think this film benefits from a second watch because you going in knowing how it ends, actually, it sort of has a, a real power to it. You're 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 almost willing it to be different. You almost want her to to be okay at the end and i mean you know as you said either she is or she isn't depending on your reading of the film but either way she's leaving this this sort of plane and um i think that if you are like me more of an atheist you believe the darker reading which is basically she's just burned herself alive on the beach um that's horrific and i think that you feel that all the way through the film watching it a second time what do you feel that the the sort of the, the progressive lead up of self-harm because she starts off with a bit of well first of all she's isolated herself that's a form of mm. of self-inflicted mental torture um and she is or isn't suffering from some form of ptsd from accidentally killing a patient mm-hmm. i mean it's suggested that she crushed through someone's chest whilst administering cpr but she's a little girl how the fuck can she push through someone's chest yeah i wonder if that's more of just a like a metaphor rather than an actual that i don't believe but, that but actually fil- happened but the film opens with her hands covered in blood and the person yeah. dead on the table so we can only you, know, you can only take it on at that point in the film you can only take it on face value right mm-hmm. but either way she's she's suffering from some form of self-inflicted mental isolation and social isolation but then she starts physically harming herself she burns herself on the fancy the looking well the fancy looking hobs what hob is a little lid is it a pancake one is it makes it's, a, a it's, a, it's a posh person's oven it's an arga it's always on an arga is never turned off yeah well that's just it's always hot don't tell Greta Thunberg she won't like that <laughs> Well, I think it's meant to be more environmentally friendly, possibly. No. If you leave them on, you'll steal my cookies. Right? (laughs) And then then she puts the nails in her shoe. Oh, yeah. And you... Oh, Oh, but she also kneels down on, like... Yeah. Like, popcorn curdles or whatever they are. Yeah. And she does that. She does the, uh, the kneeling on the stones right after she's had this sort of euphoric, almost orgasmic moment of bliss... So it's almost like flagellation, in, or in like almost flagellation. like punishing herself for it's having completely. a nice it's time. Like the, yeah, it's like Paul Bettany in the yeah with the whip thing. What's that film? Cat called? Nine Tails. The the, the the Da Vinci Code, right? Yeah, you know you are 
you are punishing yourself for having well a really good time (laughs) (laughs) you enjoyed that too much you sick sick enjoyed that too much you must punish yourself (laughs) because even though we're with Maud, we don't really know her we we know she's young we know for whatever reason she is religious we don't learn anything about her backstory past a year because if we are to believe she is what she is on face value she's only been a carer or a nurse for a year and that includes accidentally killing someone yeah and her name I know, is actually it does... katie not maud yeah like it, it shouldn't work it fit you feel like um you know all kind of all kinds of screenwriting whatever lessons are like tell us what they want tell us what their backstory is you know let us know a rounded version of this person but i think that that's almost like the beauty of this film it's just so elegantly simple it doesn't Mm. clutter you doesn't clutter the story with sort of superfluous information that isn't relevant to what she's experiencing in this very specific moment in her life it's all about the religion it's all about um her ptsd and her sort of rituals that she does um and her interacting with other characters you know you don't know if she's actually homophobic you don't know if she um if she wants to i don't know you don't really know exactly what is going on with her at any given moment but you get little clues you get tantalizing little hints throughout that start to build a picture of this person Why but then she'll but then she'll do something that is completely unexpected like go to the pub and yeah. like toss a guy off in the back and things like that so she's constantly wrong-footing you so that was going to be one of my questions did maud turn her back on god roughly around halfway through the film because she goes to the the, the pub she does the what's it in the back then she takes the big guy home she's doing all these things that mm. a good christian girl might not be inclined to do yeah well does she feel abandoned by god at that moment because it's only when she has the kind of the seizure and she starts to float that she takes that as a sign that um what does she say she's she has the shower and she says something like finally you know you've shown me you're still here kind of thing whereas i think that that's kind of her dark night of the soul where she's slapped the patient she starts to have these stomach pains she um she's failed i think she she thinks that she's failed because she was there to save amanda or maybe not save her but like maybe save her soul and prepare her for for meeting god and instead she loses her temper slaps her and gets forced out of the house was she there to do that though was that her is that her mission to save amanda yeah she says it but that's what she thinks Right, that's what she thinks. Mm. But that's not necessarily what she's there yeah. for. In what sense? Well, she's there as a carer. She's there yeah. to make sure that Amanda's last days, or not even Amanda's last days, she's just there to make sure that Amanda can get up, get dressed, eat, and go to bed. Anything other than mm. that is not part of her employment contract. She's not there to save her <laughs> soul. So if she feels that she has failed can that be considered a good thing as in don't overstep the mark but i mean even slapping your patient isn't 
particularly a good thing to do when you're their carer. So she's failed as both a, a carer and as a saviour. Ah, it was barely touched her. <laughs> <laughs> she's a horrible woman, though, wasn't she? <laughs> really horrible. I would have... Uh, hey, Amanda. I would have shouted Do you think Amanda well. was horrible? Amanda was manipulative, and I think Amanda was a bit of a bully. Hmm. She calls her Saint Maud, not in a nice way. It's a sarcastic way. And she even writes it in the book, the book of William Blake. Mm. You are my saviour. Yeah. You know, Maud takes it to heart like I am. I am her saviour. Maybe that's why Maud feels that, you know, maybe Maud reads into that as Amanda giving her permission to to be this way, to, to save her soul. But I see it as Amanda being quite a horrible, bitter person. Maybe understandably because she's dying of cancer, mm. but, you know, she embarrasses or is, is horrible, really horrible to Maud in front of all those people at the the party. If you had a party, you'd turn a couple of lights on. It's so <laughs> dark in that house. But she was, it was decadent. But I think that's what, that, that, that relationship was fascinating because you've got Amanda who is on the brink of death and yet she's sort of living it up quite vicariously. Yeah. Whereas uh, Maud is, by all accounts, young and healthy, physically at least. But she lives this sort of cloistered, pious existence where when she smiles, it's almost uncomfortable. But, you know, you find... Chalk and cheese. Nuns and monks do that. They live a very simple life where they sort of... What's it called when you... um, You... What's the opposite of relinquish? You relinquish, right? You 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 use mm. you live a life of poverty. You know, you you go live in the nunnery or the monkery, the, the monk, <laughs> the, monastery. the monastery, <laughs> <laughs> the monkastery, the monkastery, um, and you know, you have your very basic, simple room and your very basic, simple existence because you don't want your oh, like um. Like Whitby Goldberg in Sister Act. Yeah, that was on today, actually. Um, You don't want your your devotion to God to be clouded by anything around you. You know, shiny trinkets or money or relationships with other people. You need to be completely devoted and focused on God. and, And does that bring happiness? I guess that's the... I guess that's the theory, but I think it re- I think it requires God to act in a in a caring sense, and it seems to me in this film, God isn't caring. If it is indeed God that is interacting with Maud, I mean, do you see it mm. as a as a, a a a relationship between Maud and God, or is there something else going on? Oh, I saw it completely as fantasy. I saw it completely as somebody who's suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder who is lonely you know we when she goes to the pub she clearly wants to um have human interaction and the easiest way for that was to like get with a guy yeah um and you know she tries to sort of like jokingly join in with that party of friends and they kind of push her out um so I don't. I just saw all of her interactions with God as sort of a more like a vagina monologues kind of like conversation with herself, and 
then um, that sort of like develops into towards the end it develops into Amanda almost becoming the devil so when she starts to sort of like berate Maud in you know when she's lying in the bed and says oh well it was easier than I thought it was going to be you know that is that's pure sort of like devil manipulation stuff so in Maud's mind she's become the devil but I don't think it's realistic even though that effect of her sitting up and her face stretches mm. terrify oh my god there's so many amazing little bits of sort of computer generated manipulation in this film it's beautiful it's done so so beautifully it's the best type of cgi where it's just seamless it's not for crash bang mm. wallop showy showy it actually supports the themes and the narrative yeah and it's beautiful you know the the whirlpools in the pints beautiful yeah. and the the clouds spinning to form sort of like a gateway to heaven is just absolutely beautiful. See, I see it as potentially that it's not God, it is the devil. Mm. And the devil The whole way is... through. Yeah, because in my head, I don't really see any difference between God and the devil. God is a, you know, God is always, it's always, it's always said, God is a loving God. Well, if you know anything about the Bible... God is not a loving God. He is a jealous, vengeful, petulant mm. little bastard child who who wants everything. You know, he wants your complete devotion, but he's going to give you fuck all back. And whatever he gives you is going to be very contradictory, which is a very devilish thing to do. So it could be said mm. that God and devil are the same thing. It's like Janus, the two-faced God. You know, the Yanis, the two-faced mm. being. So if it is God, it's a very vengeful, jealous, manipulative God. Like, who does she, oh, yeah. who does she talk to at one point? There's a, a Welsh talking person. And we hear the Welsh voice, and it's, it's male. And the voice says, oh, soon yeah. you will join the great embrace. So if that mm. is... Whoever, I mean, whoever that is, whether it's God or the devil, soon you will join the great embrace. That's really arrogant, basically saying, yes, if you do what I want you to do, you can come be with me. And it's amazing being with me. But the mm. thing that she has to do is kill someone. Yeah. So is that God being an asshole or is that the devil doing what the devil is known to do? Oh, yeah, I mean... If you're looking at it from the religious angle, it's clearly the devil, I think. If if she, if if she's been asked to sacrifice, although do you know what, the Bible didn't um, wasn't it Cain and Abel? Didn't the dad have to sacrifice one of the boys? It's Abraham, uh, Isaac. No. Uh, yeah. Oh, is that Isaac? No, it's Abraham. Abraham or Isaac has to sacrifice his mm. son. I think it's Abraham having to sacrifice Isaac, and. Isaac, uh, Abraham's about to do it when he sees the burning bush and the burning bush is a message from God basically saying you don't have to kill your son the mere fact that you were going to do it and you were prepared to do it is enough <laughs> right That's never mind that relationship never mind the fucking fallout of that that the father and the yeah, son exactly. have to deal with this for the rest of their lives you were gonna kill me but as long yeah. as God gets his way mm. Does Maud have to prove how loyal she is to God in order to, to sort of ascend to heaven? I think so. And I think the I think the the test is to kill Amanda. 
and it's not even to the the point of Maud is willing to do it. Maud actually has to do it because ordinarily mm. God would step in and go, whoa, 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 <laughs> yeah, whoa, 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 sweet child, put of down mine. the Come scissors, on. put it down. Come on. Come on, stop messing about. Come on. <laughs> Look at the whirlpool I put in the pint. Isn't that nice? That's a new trick of mine, Daddy. I learned that one today. Right? He's not saying that. He's actually making her do it. And then he's making her go out to the beach, cover herself in, like, some sort of lighter fluid and set herself alight. Yeah. With that in mind, is this film a sort of a spiritual sequel to Carrie? Well, there's certainly parallels. They're both about young girls who are social outcasts. There's obviously a heavy, oppressive, religious presence in their life, but Maud seems to be the heavy, oppressive, religious presence in her own life. Whereas Carrie, it was her mother, Laurie Piper, the amazing Laurie (laughs) Piper. Yeah. Maud seems to be her own worst enemy, spurred on by... God, who may or may not be in the form of a cockroach. Yeah. So I think Carrie gets the better deal. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're both about sort of religious fever. But in this instance, it's the main character who's gripped by this kind of religious fever. But she's also potentially the delusional one. And she doesn't have the power that she thinks she does. Whereas Carrie does have the power, but she tries not to have it. Yes. And they both obviously end up covered in blood at one point, And then you've got the fire motif. But does Maud have the power? Because at one point, Maud unveils a set of wings. So were those mm. wings there all the time? Is Maud a fallen angel who is now having to perform some tests and, perf- and demonstrate loyalty to God in order to come back up to heaven? So did Maud have the power all along? Potentially. I read it more as she's earned those wings. But what does she do? She kills Amanda and then she gets the wings. So she's proved that she's worthy of God's love. So she kills her, acquires the wings, and that's when she ascends to heaven right after that. Yeah. See, God's not a he's not a nice person. (laughs) Not not a nice person. Do you think that do you think that Maud is strong? Do you see her as a strong person? She's resilient, you know, she she carries on, she picks herself up, even though all this shit is happening to her, whether it's self-inflicted or not. If 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 it's a case that she's got some sort of deity working against her, then yeah, she is quite strong because deities have a lot of power <laughs> and she's just this little girl in some nameless seaside town that seems to be completely forgotten by the local authorities. But yeah. if she is a young girl with a mental health disorder and there's no religious aspects at all and it's all it's all in her PTSD psychoses then I guess yeah she is strong because she's able to get up go to work and come home all the while experiencing this intense PTSD the anxiety of trauma it's just Mm. at the end that she decides to do something about it and you know, there's a discussion to be had whether people who take their own lives are strong or weak. I think it's an odd way of looking at it. I think it's a it's a situation where maybe someone finds peace with how they feel 
or what they feel is the inevitable i think to mm. say whether it's strong or weak is might be too much of a judgment especially if you're saying they're weak for doing that not you the general you especially if people mm. are saying it's weak to kill yourself mm. it's too strong a judgment that's only reserved yeah. for god <laughs> yeah well, I think it's interesting that she is strong. She is strong and resilient, but that strength is almost weaponized against herself. You know, her, she turns her strength into hurting herself. And whether you read it as flagellation, you know, that kind of stuff, whatever. But I think she she is a strong person and it's almost a tragedy that she that that strength almost sort of like sort of tox tox is toxic in some way it kind of she has no outlet for it really it, it becomes self-harming maybe is the film a tragedy i see it as a massive tragedy yeah but i think that's because i read it literally rather than metaphorically i guess i, I see all of the the visual trickery and all of that stuff i, I see that as a figment of her imagination so that shot that very brief glimpse at the very mm. end where you see her screaming on fire i see that as literally something that's happened that's the reality and it's tragic and i, I and i you see it as that way as well well i th- i think i think there's no other way of seeing it because otherwise what could that be unless unless mm-hmm. maud has been tricked by the devil but i guess if if maud believes it even until her death, if she believes this, it is, for all intents and purposes, real to her. Yeah. So for her, it's a triumph. So if she... We don't know. Yeah, we don't know if she is dying in that moment feeling ecstatic and euphoric and that she's ascending to heaven or that she's screaming and burning quite, you know, in a, in a horrific, painful way. We don't know which one is her actual experience it's like the um we only know what we're showing it's like the guy at the end of midsummer when he catches fire and you just realize Mm. that he's just realized how fucked up the situation is and what a mistake it hurts it hurts but i think by including that you know those couple of frames that is like a it's great little horror bit because it's a it's just mm. a classic jump scare, isn't it? But by including that... Oh, my God. I, th- I think Rose Glass is basically saying, yes, this is a tragedy. What you've just watched, I've just yeah. led you down this ambiguous path, but now I'm basically saying, no, she's fucked. This is a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And again, like last week, this is a directorial debut. This is Rose Glass, yeah, it's first amazing. feature film as writer, director what a brilliant film mm. to jump out the gate is that the I know. Is that the term jumping out the gate started out the gate <laughs> at, the at the starting gate, gate. this is yeah. her first film can you imagine what's going to come next the next 5 10 15 20 years and it's, it was even more apparent watching it a second time just seeing how um how meticulous and how cinematic um and how sort of um it has such a she has such a firm grip on the tone of the mm. film because this could have gone wildly all over the place, yeah. but it has such such a clear intention from the very first frame. Um, you know, it, you just feel like you're in a safe pair of hands, and it, 
what we're being shown is horrifying, but it's still you feel safe with it. <laughs> it's, it's it's quite a small, closed film in that, you know, a great thing for for early filmmakers is you have one location. Here, there's multiple locations, mm. but we keep going back to the same locations. Amanda's house, maybe somewhere on the beach, that pub, yeah, and Maud's flat. You know, there's not that many locations and they're all very identifiable. But it's a very mm-hmm. moody, oppressive, claustrophobic film. And it- yeah. And there are repeated shots within the same locations. So you see her at the beginning of the film walking past the Coney yeah. Island arcade and you see her do that walk again, possibly wearing the shoes. Yeah. Uh, when she's kind of at the beginning of the film going up to Amanda's house for the first time, you see her with Ferris wheel behind her as she walks up Mm -hmm. the hill. Then you see her walking through the garden gate and you see that almost, not quite, but almost shot for shot when she does that walk for the last time when she goes up to kill Amanda as well. It's very, very clever, efficient use of eye-catching locations. Yeah, because each scene has a completely different feel, but yet the world around her is completely unchanged, which is basically sums up her miserable, pitiful existence. No one around her yeah. gives a fuck. And did you note? Did you notice the? Um, okay, so this is a question. What do you think is the meaning behind the use of blue throughout the film? Because this is a really clever little thing that Rose Class does that I only picked up on the second well, time. Blue usually means sadness and and a, a kind of a, a cool a cold distance from people. So, what I noticed was there's this aqua blue color. It's the towel that she wraps the crucifix oh. in. It's the color of the pill tray. It's even the color of the needle that she uses on yeah. Amanda. It's the ribbon that Amanda ties around the book that she gives to Maud. It's the same colour that Amanda's girlfriend wears, a sparkly party dress. And we, the first clue that we get why this may be a recurring motif is when, is it Joy, the the other nurse? She kind of, she bumps into Maud on the seafront. It's like, oh, Maud, it's so good to see you. And she kind of gives this flippant line where she says, oh, you know, the blue corridors of the hospital, always there, blah, blah, blah. And it's almost like Maud has carried this trauma of her her past, this blue, the colour blue of the hospital, the colour blue of the nurse scrubs that they wear in the hospital. She's carrying it with her in every single scene in the film. So there's that reading But that of it. blue, that kind of pale baby blue, often the Virgin Mary is clothed in this blue. So is Rose Glass saying that Maud is pure like the Virgin Mary? Yeah. It's very late on in the film that you see the statue of the Virgin Mary in that yeah. same blue colour. Is Rose Glass saying that Maud has a a higher purpose, that she's here for a particular reason because i don't think any none of the characters benefit from having Maud around her or them not in a not in a negative sense i think everyone's just so selfish and wrapped up in their own 
world, maybe with the exception of Joy, who genuinely seems to be a little bit concerned. Not enough to actually do anything about it, but... And she's quite happy to smoke yeah, in exactly. the as well. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> That's your cigarette. She probably looked around and thought, well, it's already a shithole. Uh, but no one yeah. benefits, you know, no one benefits from Maud's saintly doings or saintly presence. So is there a contradiction here mm-hmm. where Rose Glass is dressing Maud up or, or using colour to point towards Maud being some sort of saintly being, but Maud actually does fuck all for anyone is that her greatest failure Mm. or Maud is just fashioning herself in the image of the Virgin Mary you know it could just be as simple as that she's living her best Virgin Mary fantasy blue (laughs) (laughs) the blue the blue fairy fantasy category is Virgin Mary realness (laughs) that was Saint Maud, directed by Rose Glass, and that was our 21st century horror series. That was 21st century horror. Now, the reason we ended on Saint Maud was because we both feel that there seems to be a brilliant new wave of these kinds of horror films, and I actually think it goes back a little bit further. I think the beginnings of this new wave started with the Babadook, and then it's sort of filtered through and we end up with things like Mandy and now we've got St. Maud and then this year we've had Censor directed by Mm -hmm. can never remember her name Prana Bailey Smith? I don't think it's Smith Mm. hang on Oh. Google 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 Google. (laughs) Prano Bailey Bond which is just like the coolest Uh. name ever (laughs) but there seems to be a really cool cool new wave of this kind of ambiguous horror almost like british a24 movies yeah and actually female filmmakers yeah, are sort of leading led, the pack yeah. like we had was it i think it was last year as well we had relic by natalie erica mm-hmm. james which was one of my favorite films last year just impeccable australian horror film starring emily mortimer and it has a very similar vibe to St. Maud, where you're not entirely sure exactly what is going on, but then the payoff is sort of like hugely emotional and really quite moving. And then you had Raw by Julia Ducournau. Oh, a couple of years ago. Who I think Actually, this year... a couple of years ago. This year she was the first female to win the Palm d'Or at Cannes. Oh, wow. Um, she's got a film called Titane, which is about a murderous woman who is like into auto erotica <laughs> it looks <happy>. amazing <laughs> maybe watch that one on your own yeah <laughs> not with the parents <laughs> but then you've got things like um, rob savage but he did host last year during the pandemic he's got a new one out called dash cam which i think just showed at lff mm-hmm. so there, there is this really amazing vibrant exciting new generation of genre filmmakers coming through that is just like amazing i think it's such a great time to be alive if you're a horror fan that's because horror never dies it just reinvents itself regenerates like the doctor it regenerates like michael myers you can't kill the shape (laughs) can't kill the shape and it's not actually it's not even just films being made by women it's also films about women you know you've got the invisible man which put a, a, a real spin on like a hoary old classic 
but it made it into a story about domestic abuse and sort of technology gone wild and and we had it follows which was very much about promiscuity and stds and and i think that you know the the time has come for more emotionally resonant psychological horror that maybe has more of a focus on female characters that have we haven't necessarily had enough of in Mm. the past decades well i'm excited for it yeah bring it on bring well not bring it on (laughs) that That is not horror that is pure joy (laughs) um be sure to check out all our episodes on apple podcast spotify and acast how many episodes were there in the 21st century horror season is that our longest Mm. ever season 16 or 17 episodes something like that oh it feels like a lot longer than that in a good way in a really good way yeah it's been a great year Although I'm ready to watch Bring It On. (laughs) I'm actually ready to watch Censor and The Exorcist as a back-to-back double bill. I feel they kind of go together and I don't know why. If you like what we do, jump over to Twitter and Joshua will tell you the name. At TornStubsPod. Come give us a tweet. Let us know what you thought of our 21st century horror season. And let us know what you would like us to do next. What, What sort of seasons would you like us to do? We are back later in the year with our Christmas episodes and our end-of-year wrap-up. We're off to wear something blue. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Josh Winning. Cut!